legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Sebastian Rushworth, who joins us to discuss his book, COVID, by most of what you know is wrong, which examines some of the most central questions about the COVID-19 pandemic. How deadly is COVID-19? What is long COVID? How accurate are the COVID tests? Does lockdown prevent COVID deaths? What are the harms of lockdown? Do face masks stop COVID? Are the COVID vaccines safe and effective? Why did the world react so hysterically to COVID? Rushworth demonstrates that COVID-19 is nowhere near as bad as it is portrayed by the mainstream media. He shows that the mortality rate is below 0.2%, meaning that for most people, the risk of dying if infected is less than 1 in 500 and less than 1 in 3,000 if you're below 70. The disease preferentially strikes people who are anyway very close to the end of life, so the amount of lifetime lost when someone dies of the disease is usually tiny. He also shows that 98% of people who get COVID are fully recovered within three months and that there is no good evidence that COVID results in long-term health consequences. Moreover, he points out that the measures taken to fight COVID, such as lockdowns, huge fear campaigns and school closures, will result in far more years of life lost than will be directly lost to the virus. The data used in the book is publicly available and frequently published in some of the most prestigious and respected scientific journals in the world. Hello and welcome Sebastian and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, it's my pleasure to be here. Sebastian, today we're going to be talking about the COVID pandemic and the global response to that, a lot of which is encapsulated in your book uh, entitled covid why most of what you know is wrong. Before we jump into that, just for listeners who don't know, give them a brief potted bio of uh, your background and your work in general. As I work as a physician in, in Stockholm in, in Sweden. And uh, about a, a little over a year ago, I decided to start uh, uh, blogging. And, and just I've been thinking for the last couple of years that I'd like to... Um, counter some of the misinformation that spreads on the internet in relation to uh, various health and medical issues. And um, so I wasn't really, uh, I actually wasn't thinking of writing about COVID at all, but um, I I, I had this conversation with um, my mother after I'd been uh, af- just a couple of weeks after I started writing and working on the blog and and uh, and I, I mean I work as a doctor so I'd been seeing COVID patients in the hospital and 
I'd kind of been following what the studies were showing and what the statistics were showing. And, and, uh, my mother has, I mean, was coming at it from a very different perspective. She doesn't have any kind of medical background and, and her perspective on the pandemic was uh, basically what she was getting from the news. Um, and, and I just noticed that we have this completely different, uh, uh, understanding of what was going on. And I thought that would be interesting to write about. Uh, so I wrote a little article about that, like in, in, I think in August of last year. And, and, and the article went uh, hugely viral. Uh, I think uh, like half a million people read it within, within a few days. And, um, and so I kind of, I realized that uh, there was a lot of interest in getting a, a different perspective on the pandemic. So I wrote a few more articles and then um, a publisher contacted me and asked me to write a book. So, uh, so I did that. And, um, and so that's kind of uh, what's, what resulted in me writing so much about COVID. It, it was never a kind of a conscious plan to begin with. No, and it should be emphasised that your your blog is, is simply a medical and health blog. It's it's not a pandemic blog by any means. There's plenty of those out there. It's just that it would be rather strange if a practicing doctor who had a, a medical and health blog was not mentioning COVID in the midst of all this. You know, it's the big health issue of the day. But you also mentioned at the start of your book uh, that you had this rather strange experience during your medical training uh, with regard to diet and nutrition and what the you know what you were being told. And that informs you, and I think this, this is why you mention it in the book, and that informed your attitude to the COVID question, uh, which was, you know, there was a, a sort of a consensus version of things and how things should be dealt with and, you know, how to treat people and, and just all of the usual considerations that any medical doctor or medical professional will take into account. But you were saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. And a lot, a lot of it did with regard to COVID, a lot of it stemmed from your experience, you know, being taught about, about, about nutrition and health. Yeah. So uh, I developed an interest in, in nutrition, um, uh, a couple of years before I started studying medicine. Uh, I, I, I didn't start studying medicine, uh, immediately after high school. I, I, I actually studied business and economics and then I worked uh, uh, doing that for a couple of years. And then, so I was, um, I was 30 when I started studying medicine and, and already had kind of a lot of other experiences. And I'd, uh, and, uh, and like I said, I'd, I'd had this interest in nutrition for a couple of years and I'd, I'd, um, been been looking into the the research long before I started studying medicine and 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 uh, I mean doctors learn very little nutrition in medical school I think uh, over in Sweden medical school is five and a half years and I think we have maybe one day of lectures on on nutrition during that whole time and um, and 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 it just became clear to me that uh, w- what uh, we're taught in medical school when it comes to nutrition is is largely incorrect and and it's uh, it's kind of um it, it's very dogmatic it's uh, i mean what you hear from public health authorities is um 
it's kind of this dogma that was developed in the late 70s and early 80s and that uh, and that uh, is completely resistant to uh, any kind of change and uh, uh in my last um my last term of medical school uh, we had a lecture with uh, with a nutritionist who came from the swedish um uh, public health agency and she literally said uh, she showed us a, a list of 10 bullet points and, and she said this is your bible this is what you're this is what you're going to tell patients and and i just kind of scanned through it and and i saw that uh, most of the things on that list on that list were actually not supported by by any kind of scientific evidence a lot of them have, have been disproven and and yet that's still kind of what we're being told is the truth and that we're we're supposed to um promulgate and uh and uh, and i think that the this uh, experience kind of um caused me to um be, just become more skeptical in general and 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 feel a strong need to look into the evidence not just on nutrition but but on everything and and so this is this is what uh, caused me to decide that I wanted to start blogging because um it would give me kind of an uh, an excuse to to do deep dives in different issues and see what the science actually says and and, and then discuss it with other people on the internet who are interested um so um i i guess that's kind of what what shaped my thinking and what also caused me to uh question and a lot of uh, a lot of the covid narrative and 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 especially when i looked at the studies and looked at the statistics and saw that what they were showing was really very different from the picture that was being presented in the media well the whole thing about nutrition is very strange because you would think that even considering that you know not not every not there isn't one diet that fits everybody there are some general things that we can say uh, but if you go to a professional nutritionist one of the things they're doing is trying to look at someone's special health needs or challenges or requirements of what they're trying to achieve you know what's working what isn't and tweaking that the idea that this food pyramid which i'm even familiar with from school you know it's just it's supposed to, everyone in the world is supposed to eat that and thrive is you know obvious nonsense not possible when did you first begin to question you know that there you are working on the front line do you remember the moment when maybe it was one moment or maybe it was a, a creeping sensation of like why is what what i'm seeing what i'm experiencing not matching up with what's being presented to most other most people you know lay people members of the public well so i mean there there were a number of things that happened in in early 2020 that uh were the that were a little bit funny and one of them was um well when the whole covid hysteria began and uh, when covid first came to sweden all the patients disappeared <laughs> no one was showing up at the hospital anymore and uh and uh it 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 re i mean it it wasn't just a temporary thing it lasted for months uh, during this whole massive first wave of COVID, the number of people presenting at the emergency room was uh, like a fraction of what it normally is, and and uh, and uh, the Swedish authorities they 
they built uh, field hospitals to uh, handle this expected onslaught and and uh, the the these field hospitals never ended up treating a single patient and uh, and I kind of went well so this is a this is a bit funny cuz uh, what's being presented in the media is like that the healthcare system is overrun and and that's really not uh, not my personal experience working in in the emergency department and it, i mean it's not even what you'll find if you actually look look into uh, like what is the the current uh, number of people being treated for covid in the healthcare system and uh, um and and i mean i there were covid patients coming to the hospital i mean uh, it's like all the patients vanished, but the the people who came were COVID patients. But uh, it, I mean, it was never an onslaught, and um, and uh, and and the patients. I mean, they weren't that sick, most of them. Or there were a few that were sick, but the vast majority we we could send home. So the send home from the emergency department. Uh, so this this whole picture of a, a deadly pandemic just didn't jive very well with what I was personally seeing, and um, so I guess that kind of disconnect was what got me thinking to begin with. Well, perhaps we could say a word about studies and statistics, because of course both of those have been shoved down our throats from the media about saying this study uh, confirms the following, and this terrifying study confirms. The, the next thing and these statistics show this and these statistics show that but what I find I actually stopped paying attention to the mainstream media on March the 17th 2020 because I could tell what was coming and I knew it was going to drive me nuts but I found since then that any big events relating to all this anything that I need to know about the information finds its way to me so um, I've been able to switch off from the media and still know what's going on which is interesting in itself. There's this lack of context. And first of all, some of these studies are just, you know, you have to look at how the study was designed and how statistics are presented. You know, again, what is the context of it? And one of the things that irritates me, particularly with the mainstream media presentation of, of, of numbers, terrifying sounding numbers to the public, is that they're not very good with percentages or comparisons. For example, they'll give you a number of cases, but they don't say, yeah, but... That, that's however many thousand cases, but that number, what percentage is that of a total of any given population of a town or a country or whatever? And they don't do comparisons like X number of COVID deaths. Um, there's a whole deaths with COVID and death from COVID. Uh, but yeah, how does that compare to other causes of death? They, they never put that in context. They won't say, okay, so we had this number of COVID deaths during this month, but actually that's much slower than, than heart disease or cancer. And that doesn't, that's not trying to remove, um, the, the fact that it's a problem, but context would really help people get this in, in perspective. Absolutely. I, I mean, a, a lone number is meaningless. It, I mean, it really tells you nothing. You, the only way to understand numbers is in, is in relation to other numbers. And, uh, if you say, uh, hundreds of people died of COVID, today that sounds awful but uh, if you say normally we would expect uh, 10,000 people to die in a day and uh, and the number changed from 10,000 to 10,000 
200, then uh, suddenly it doesn't sound as bad. And, and uh, that kind of context has been missing the whole time. It's, it's, uh, uh, the same with when you look at hospital admissions and, and uh, they're saying the hospitals are crashing because they're so full of COVID patients, but, but there's no, but there's no comparison made with previous years. And I mean, if you look at media articles, hospitals were crashing in the, in every winter of the last five or 10 winters. That's what, that's what they do because we have a, and it has nothing to do with COVID. It has to do with having a stretched healthcare system that doesn't have the excess capacity necessary to be handle, necessary to be able to handle peaks like you see every winter when you have lots of people coming in with influenza and other respiratory viruses. And it's this kind of, um, this complete lack of putting things in context, which, uh, I mean, I think can only be understood from the perspective of, uh, uh, wanting to scare people or wanting to make things sound as bad as possible because, well, I guess because it sells more issues because you get more, more clicks and more views and, or, or whatever, but, uh, I, this has been a constant, uh, issue throughout the pandemic that, uh, numbers are never presented in any context. And so people don't have any context. And, and, and most people think this is a deadly pandemic. They think they, they, per, their personal risk is of serious disease and death is huge. Even if they're, they're young and healthy and their actual risk is maybe one in, 20 or 30,000. There's this kind of huge disconnect between reality and what people believe. Yes, uh, the, the, in, here in the UK, the NHS in crisis, close to collapse, has been a clarion call for as long as I can remember, usually in the winter. And there's, I remember previous headlines with avian flu and swine flu and whatever else sorts of flu. And, you know, it was all, it was going to be sweet the world and it would be like, you know, post apocalyptic. And it never happened. And it seemed to me this time round, it was just that a lot of the ways that things had been done previously were kind of reversed. So you just got a completely different impression. If you, you know, if you weren't close to it, if you weren't really paying attention, if you weren't doing your own due diligence on it, you could get a completely different impression because it was presented differently. Um, in terms of numbers of deaths, I remember when 9-11 happened and you had the 3,000 plus people tragically died on that day of those attacks. And, and But how quickly... The number of innocent people killed in Iraq reached 100,000 after that, um, all in the name of 9-11. And, but, you know, again, those two figures were rarely presented together just as for a question of perspective. You know, is the response to 9-11 proportionate? And especially in terms of like, what outcome are we looking for? That's, of course, another com- complete discussion. But yeah, as you say, low numbers are basically meaningless. And another thing is questions of, different differences within science on any given topic and you'll be well aware of you know there's a spectrum of views uh sometimes quite narrow you know most people generally agree on something and on some subjects scientific or medical opinion can vary very greatly and during the pandemic response the clarion call has been to follow the science this is a science-led response anthony fauci and others in the u.s just saying you know it is unscientific to question this but the question is, who's science? Because science and 
medicine for that matter, is, is carried out by human beings, individuals. And we know that from the point of view of medicine, there's all sorts of different ways of treating illness and injury over thousands of years that some of which turned out to be complete quackery and that why were we doing that well at the time we thought it would work you know a course of leeches and bloodletting and <laughs> that sort of stuff and other stuff has has persisted and been built upon because it's yet it's proven this efficacy has been proven so when the media are talking about follow the science what annoys me is how people like yourself who are coming along perfectly level-headed perfectly qualified to comment um, have been marginalised and the an impression is given that 99.99% of doctors and other medical professionals and scientists working in the medical field um, are all agreed on this view that's been presented and that's simply not the case. Yeah, it's pretty funny and it's, I mean, it's like uh, science is handed down as kind of a like uh, the these uh, tablets from above and i mean that's not uh, how science works and it's not what science is the whole point of science is debate and difference of opinion and it's, i mean especially with uh, this new virus and this completely new way of handling a pandemic where i mean we're dealing with a huge amount of uncertainty there's a huge lack of data and information and 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 i mean to be saying that the science is settled on on any of the important issues in relation to covid which i mean the authorities have been saying since day one is just patently absurd and and um well i i mean i've been kind of shocked at the the narrowness of opinions that are allowed uh, to be presented in the media. It's like uh, the, uh, it's kind of like, I, I guess when a country goes to war and uh, the media stops uh, its normal role of kind of uh, criticizing and, uh, and uh, holding, uh, holding, government and power to account and just kind of starts marching in line behind the government and saying whatever the government decides is the is the truth and that i mean the kind of behavior you would see from media during i i guess like the first or second world war that's that's what we've seen during during covid and it, it just happened so quickly that the, the government stopped, uh, that the media stopped thinking independently and, and just started marching in line behind the government. And I, I get, it's kind of frightening because in reality, there's this whole breadth of opinions and views on, on how to handle the pandemic. And, and uh, a lot of the the alternate views are perfectly reasonable and and have a lot of basis in science and and i mean like with lockdowns for example it's this is something completely new that was invented in 2020 and prior to 2020 there was a widespread agreement on how to handle pandemics that was completely different and and suddenly people who are saying well we should uh, kind of be handling this pandemic the way 
the that the WHO said before 2020 that we should be handling pandemics. That viewpoint is presented as uh, as like ludicrous and insane when when it was considered the most reasonable course of action as recently as 2019. And uh, so I, there's been this kind of narrowing of of acceptable viewpoints from the beginning of the pandemic that that I find uh, very hard to understand. Well, I did hear anecdotal evidence that the WHO World Health Organization had changed their definition of what a pandemic is in order to declare this a pandemic, but I have not verified that. Let's talk a little bit about um, COVID tests then and what constitutes case. This is another area of frustration for those of us trying to get clarity on this and trying to ensure that the general public are able to understand what's being put before them. There's a whole question of the efficacy of the tests, and we probably can't really get into cycles and PCR tests and what have you, because that gets a bit technical and can take a while. We would have to basically explain it. But there's a question of how effective the tests are, what sort of results are throwing up, depending on how they are. Well, basically just how they're set up, you know, what, what are they looking for and what the thresholds are. Maybe that's a good word, what the thresholds for are. And then what constitutes a case and of course, anybody who uh, tests positive is now being called a case. But I'm not sure, certainly in the UK and probably lots of other parts of the world, that first of all, during flu season in previous years, people weren't being tested. Uh, but I could, we could be going around with flu virus antibodies within us, you know, millions of us, maybe billions around the world, but we're not being tested. So we're not being counted as cases. And that's what constitutes a case. And if somebody's asymptomatic, Yes, they may be able to, to pass that disease on, that infection on, but that changing the, the, the definition of case in that way seems to me very disingenuous and not helpful at all because it doesn't really tell us how many um, sickened people we're dealing with, people who are actually suffering from you know, noticeable symptoms. Yeah, I mean, before COVID, the definition of a case was someone who had a, some kind of confirmatory test and symptoms you I, this is very new for covid that you you can kind of define someone as a case just based on a test and and that in combination with this kind of mass testing is it, it, it seems designed to maximize fear by by generating ever increasing numbers of cases i mean if before covid if, if say say a child came to the emergency room with respiratory symptoms which is extremely common uh if if the child was sick then we'd probably run some tests see if they have rs virus or influenza or whatever and uh, and admit them for treatment but if the if the child was healthy enough to go home which they are like 19 times out of 20 at least we wouldn't do any tests because that would be considered uh, at least here in sweden it would be considered a waste of taxpayer money because testing someone who's healthy enough to go home isn't isn't changing anything the only normally in medicine the only reason to do a test is if it 
somehow changes management there there's no point testing someone for something if it's not actually going to change anything in 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 how the patient is managed so i mean this is kind of a departure from the normal way of doing things in medicine and i mean it's clearly has nothing to do with with medicine it's i mean this is clearly a political thing oh absolutely and i think that the the covid um, apps that people have been encouraged to have on their on their smartphones and they, you know they've been getting pinged i don't know what word you're using for that in sweden and then they have to they have to isolate and they're off work and off school and their staff shortages and medical um, staff are getting pinged all over the place and i think at one point they took with the certainly with the london police and possibly hospital staff well said okay you just gonna need, you need to switch your phones off you need to leave them in your lockers because we're not going to have anyone left to do the work here and all of the other as you say all the testing regime uh, in itself the re- testing regimes are hugely costly um in terms of time and resources um not just you know money but you know human resources as well and um yeah and it clearly as you say has got nothing to do with science uh, very little to do with science and nothing to do with actually um helping people i'll just briefly turn to a question which again i've talked to people about just you know friends colleagues and they seem oh really you know what's what's all this about and i remember at school learning that basically viruses weren't alive there's the, the question that they don't uh, fulfill all the the life processes which briefly are, um i went i had to go and look this up again movement respiration sensitivity nutrition excretion reproduction growth living organisms display these life processes viruses do not so p- perhaps in layman's terms you could just say a word for people who are listening to yeah to try and answer the question or at least give some sort of information on the question of are viruses alive because this i started to think about this when we all began to slather everything in antibacterial um, gels and douse everything with bleach and i just thought well, what are we doing this for we're not dealing with 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 a bacterium you know we're dealing with a virus yes well i, I it's correct viruses don't have any metabolism of their own and therefore in that sense they're not alive a virus is completely dependent on on getting inside a host cell and getting the host cell to to do the things it wants done the the virus is basically um it's an inert particle it can't it can't do anything on its own it it, it uh, just by luck it latches onto a host cell and the host cell drags it inside and then and then uh, uses the the virus's dna or rna as a blueprint to produce new viruses that it then expels and that can infect other cells so the virus on its own is is completely inert um and um uh, and i mean well bleach is uh, kind of such a, a powerful substance that it'll destroy viral particles it, if you take uh, say like an alcohol based disinfectant it uh, it's it can be effective against certain types of viruses uh, depending on whether they have a kind of a lipid membrane on the outside outside their their shell or or if they don't so 
So alcohol-based disinfectants work against certain kinds of viruses and, and not against others. But in in some cases, um, bleach, for example, it's not um, suitable to apply that to your human hands or any parts of the human body or any surfaces that, you know, that humans be coming into contact with, there'll be certain cases where it's not appropriate. You're going to cause damage to do that. Absolutely. And I mean, anything biological will be harmed. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, some people might say, well, asking whether viruses are alive is is a distraction uh, in all of this. I just think it's an interesting question. And for me, it speaks to like how little general knowledge there is about what's actually going on here. So that's why I brought it up because, you know, there, I was watching a commercial on TV the other day, or it happened to be on when I was switching the TV on to use the, the multimedia center. And it had a picture of this bottle and the, the brand has been around for a long time, but it's recently been redesigned. And it's got a picture of a, a very angry looking little coronavirus character on the front being shown being squashed. This is not bleach. This is spray that's designed for kitchen and bathroom surfaces, you know, and, and any table that you might eat off. Just and general surfaces around the, the house, and you have to be very careful with the, the strength of what you're applying uh, along the lines that we just mentioned. Now, another interesting thing for me was, and it is how many, even in the mainstream media early on in the pandemic, certain facts and figures were put out there that spoke to that put the thing in a fairly reasonable perspective in terms of how deadly it is or was. And it it was openly stated there was a 99 point whatever survival rate and it showed how that varied a little bit depending on how old you were and if you had any comorbidities and whether you had, you know, immune deficiencies and whatnot. And there were other figures like that that for a lot of people were kind of like, okay, so that's not so bad. This is clearly a thing and it's it's going around the world at, you know, at a rate of knots, but it doesn't sound like, you know, it's not going to kill that many people. And that flipped very quickly into absolute horror stories. And those facts and figures that you could go back and dig up, they got forgotten. So it's almost now if you start to talk to someone about survival rates and about how deadly this actually is, suddenly you're a conspiracy theorist. But we could point to news reports, mainstream media news reports from January, February, March 2020, and it's all there. But, you know, the, 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 the tide of fear has swept so many people's memories clean. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at LegalizeFreedom.com. LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>